Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Nigerian astronaut wants to come home. Dear Mr. Sir, request for assistance strictly confidential. I am Dr. Bakare Tunda, the cousin of Nigerian astronaut Air Force Major Abacha Tunda. He was the first African in space when he made a secret flight to the Salyut 6 space station in 1979. He was on a later Soviet space flight, Soyuz T-16Z, to the secret Soviet military space station Salyut 8T in 1989. He was stranded there in 1990 when the Soviet Union was dissolved. His other Soviet crew members returned to Earth on the Soyuz T-16Z, but his place was taken up by return cargo. Yes, there have been occasional progress supply flights to keep him going since that time, and he is in good humour. But he wants to come home. In the 14 years since he has been on the station, he has accumulated flight pay and interest amounting to almost 15 million American dollars. This is held in a trust at the Lagos National Savings and Trust Association. If we can obtain access to this money, we can place a down payment with the Russian space authorities for a Soyuz return flight to bring him back to Earth. In order to access his trust fund, we need your assistance. Consequently, my colleagues and I are willing to transfer the total amount to your account. Needless to say, the trust on you at this juncture is enormous. In return, we have agreed to offer you 20% of the transferred sum. You will be mandated to remit the balance to other accounts in due course. Kindly expedite action as we are behind schedule to enable us to include down payment in this financial quarter. Please acknowledge the receipt of this message via my direct number, country code 2340923422220 only. Yours sincerely, Dr. Bakari Tunda. 
Astronautics Project Manager. Hello, welcome once again to another episode of Patented, my podcast about the history of inventions from History Hit. I'm Dallas Campbell, and today we are talking about the origins of spam. And I mean spam email, as opposed to spam in the can. Although, it turns out that the two spams are intimately connected. My guest today is a returning hero to Patented. It's Finn Brunton, who is a professor of science and technology. Last time he was on the show, he talked about cryptocurrency. Today, we're talking about stranded Nigerian astronauts. We're talking about penis extensions and all the other wonders that end up in your spam file. Enjoy. Finn, welcome to the show again. Lovely to have you. Wonderful to be back. For listeners who didn't listen, Finn did a really good episode on the invention of cryptocurrency, explaining to me how it all worked. I've had a lot of people getting in touch saying how brilliant it was and how it was the best explanation of cryptocurrency ever. That's wonderful to hear. You can bask in that glory. (laughs) That's nice. Well, listen, thank you very much. I know it's early where I can't remember where you are. You're somewhere in America and I forget. Yeah, California. California? That's the one. It's very early. Did you ever get that spam email about the Nigerian astronaut that got stuck on the secret space station? <laughs> yes. I've gotten, I've gotten a thousand variations of that. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of miss those days of when spam used to be pretty funny. Mm-hmm. It just, I mean, there was just, it was so ridiculous it became funny. I was just going through my spam folder in my Gmail just to see how spam has changed. About 50% of it is porn. And then the rest of it is like to do with packages. Oh, you've got a package if you don't do this. And then there's a couple of lottery ones and then a couple of penis extension ones as ever. Before we get into that, <laughs> not penis extensions, before we get into the the interestingness of spam. Let, can we start with the origins for those who don't know as a starting point, and then we can migrate, interestingly, through interesting things. So why, why is spam email called spam? The reason why it's called spam is pretty delightful. I would suggest that it's one of the great contributions that Monty Python has made to world history. Because in the 1970s, Only a small handful of people were not just on computers, but on computers that were connected to other computers, right? We're like in the the proto-internet, the idea of a computer-computer connection over a telephone. What year are we, is is this kind of before we were on the internet, when it was still universities just connected up, is that sort of era? Precisely. So kind of 1980s, 80s? Uh, 1970s. Crikey. Oh, I see. Crumbs, we go all the way back, right. Yeah, going all the way back. So the 1970s, and the fact that we're in universities matters to this story because I say this being one myself, university graduate students in the sciences were huge nerds and they loved obscure in the United States, obscure comedy. And obscure comedy in the United States was Monty Python. It was something you had to stay up late to try to watch on PBS at exactly the right time. And then you would tell your friends the routines and try to explain the sketches to them. And so One of the common activities, like late at night on a university computer system, was people telling each other jokes from Monty Python, you know, or like reposting routines that they had memorized from Monty Python. 
the one other thing that's important to understand about this moment is that early online activity, everything is scarce, right? Space is scarce. Bandwidth is scarce. Everything costs money. Everything takes mm -hmm. time. So mm -hmm. in a literal sense, every word counts, right? You would sort of tell someone to like log off if they were posting too much, as we would say now, because every line you had to download from them cost you money, cost the university money. And maybe your supervisor is going to come and harass you about like, what's all these bills coming in at three <laughs> in the morning? So one of the favorite sort of prank activities of this early, early network was the routine from Monty Python's Flying Circus, where a couple come in to a restaurant. They are trying to order something. Everything on the menu has spam in it. And in a sort of wonderfully absurd Monty Python touch, there's all these Vikings seated in the restaurant in the background who start chanting spam and singing this spam song as the sort of endless menu of spam options keeps coming. And if you were a university graduate student at exactly this time, one of the funniest things you could do would be to just launch into the Monty Python spam routine because it wasn't just that it was a Python joke and it was funny. It was that the word spam would just start to fill everyone else's screen or someone would like get up in the morning to download the chat from last night and it would just be like, oh my God, spam, 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 spam. <laughs> so this whole category of online communication where you were taking up too much room you know, where you were sort of flooding the channel, where you were overwhelming everyone else, that came to be called spamming. And that's it. And that's it. That's it. It's fun. I watched that sketch actually just before we started this. It's pretty funny. Actually, the best bit of that sketch is the entrance of the couple because they come down on wires <laughs> yes. from the ceiling. And yes. I've totally forgotten that. It was really good. It made, it made, it made me chuckle. However, there's a whole generation of, of young people who have no idea what we're talking about. <laughs> yes. I want to say like to, to young people today, imagine if like, you know, the Tim and Eric awesome show, great job, became the basis for a term that then was universalized through everyone's computer use. Yeah, or like Rick and Morty or something. Yes. Like my kids are yes. really into Rick and Morty and I could imagine Rick and Morty coming up with a word or, or something. Big Rick! Becoming a, <laughs> yes, yes. you know. If, if 30 years from now, we were all casually, like we were at like an industry conference in like an internet platform business and someone was like, so we're having a real problem with our users pickle ricking on a large scale on our servers, so we're developing an algorithm. Like that, that's the equivalent of what happens <laughs> exactly. with spam. Old people, if you don't know what Pickle Rick is, go onto the go onto Netflix and watch the Pickle Rick episode of Rick and Morty. We're really working across generational divides here. Because it, it, it is a thing of you. What is it? It's funny actually how the origins of technology. It's always like humor and pornography seem to be mm -hmm. the kind of driving force. Is that fair? It seems to be the, the thing. Yes. I would say that it's actually, there's a deep lesson for us about human nature in that the rule of thumb in, in my discipline and the history of media technology is that the first private use of any new medium is always pornography. And in fact, pornography has this like really determining effect on the adoption of different formats, on VCR, on VHS, yeah. I should say, versus beta in the VCR struggle. A lot of the early pioneers, in fact, as we might talk about, a lot of the early pioneers of online email spamming were pornographers. That, well, 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 why? I and mean, so, okay, so humor, I sort of understand. So we've got the origins of spam, but why, where does, where does sort of porn creep into there? Well, actually, we should, maybe we should define what we mean by 
by spam? Like, what? what, mm. what it, I mean, people know what it is, of course, but how would you, as an expert, can define it? So I spent a long time trying to come up with a working definition that could cover all the different applications of spam, right? We have talked a bit about email spamming. Obviously, now the term is casually used to talk about the online activity of bots on social networks, as we might discuss. It's been used to describe sites and entries on Wikipedia that are abuses of the community platform to try to sell something or manipulate something. All of these different things, how could they all be called spam together? And I think a useful, simple definition for us is spam is the abuse of accumulated human attention online. The abuse of human accumulated attention online helps us think about the idea that we accumulate attention on social networks. So people come there to try to like gain the social network to get things in front of our eyes, to sell us things or trick us or manipulate us in some way. We have a huge pool of accumulated attention on email, right? Everyone has an email address. So spammers come in to try to take advantage of that across all the different platforms that we use, wherever you see the real gathering of human attention you see the problem of spam. And whenever it crops up, even if it's very different technically or socially or otherwise, we tend to just call it spam because we recognize the sort of abuse that it is. It's quite disappointing, actually. I think because I read somewhere something like 90% of all emails is spam. That's, <laughs> that just shocked me. And I think it's quite a depressing fact that you get this wonderful new technology, well, potentially wonderful new technology, and it's just abused from the first moment and people use it to rip people off and to scam people and to steal their money. And to... What does it say about human nature that right from the get-go, it's the darker side of human nature? <laughs> yes, I mean, it is... I mean, I'm a historian, so I'm like constitutionally prone to be a pessimist, you know, <laughs> a little bit, a little bit gloomy about things. Let me put it this way. This may be a more hopeful note, is I've developed a twisted kind of respect for crooked ingenuity, you know, for the innovation of people who will see some incredible utopian new system like the birth of the early internet and be like, there has to be a way that I can sell people a bunch of damaged goods on this. There has to be a way that I can get some credit card numbers out of this. That's it. There has always been snake oil salesmen. And yes, yes, precisely. Can we, well, so, okay, so we, we've established what spam is. You've given us a, a lovely working definition. We've, we understand the word. So when was the, is there such a thing as the first spam email? Does such a thing exist? Yes, there are, you know, sort of, Edge cases where people were doing mass mails about various things in the really early days of the different networks that became the internet. But the true moment of spam does exist. It's a singular event. It's the one that changed the game for everyone and set the template for what spamming would be, not just over email, but in all subsequent formats. It was called the Green Card Lottery Spam. It was produced by a married couple of lawyers in Arizona to take advantage of of, of doing something that was vaguely legitimate, but quite shady. So the United States has a green card system for immigrants to the country. And we, the United States had launched a lottery program so that you could essentially apply for a green card, enter the lottery, and if you got lucky, one would be issued to you. Entering the lottery was not onerous. It was a very simple process, but if you weren't familiar with how simple it was, and if you were used to the misery of the American immigration system, you might be able to be convinced that you needed the help of some lawyers to file your application. So they wanted to reach out to the largest possible audience of people, ideally internationally, who might be interested in immigrating to the United States, 
who also might not be that familiar with the immigration process and who there could therefore could be tricked. And they were also early adopters of another sort of internet adjacent system, which still exists called Usenet. So they decided we are going to reach out to everyone on Usenet. I've got that. I've got it here in front of me. Yes, so the yes. first one, I'm going to read it out. The cla- so this is, so tell me the year. When did this happen? 1994. 1994. Okay, I remember. See, that's just the other day for me. <laughs> I know, right? Subject, green card lottery. Final one, question mark. Funnily enough, I remember, I, I would have fallen for this because round about 1994, I was moving to America and thinking about exactly such things. Anyway, final one, question marks. Green card lottery, maybe the last one, exclamation mark. So already it's become, it's quite clickbaity. And then in, and then in capital letters, it says, the deadline has been announced. The green card lottery is a completely legal program giving away a certain annual allotment of green cards to persons born in certain countries. The lottery program was scheduled to continue on a permanent basis. However... Recently, Senator Alan J. Simpson introduced a bill which could end any future lotteries. And then in big letters, the 1994 lottery is scheduled to take place soon, but it may be the very last one, etc., etc. Please click here, blah, 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 blah. So it's, it's, it's kind of creating that sense of urgency... And and recognizing this is something that's quite popular, green card. I think the film Green Card probably came out round about nineteen ninety four. Yes. So gr- green right, ca- yeah. green green cards were probably quite. Fit. So okay. So what did this? So it was a married couple, lawyers. What did they do? How did they say? Okay, we're going to reach out to everyone on planet Earth who's got a. Well, it would have been dial up then, wouldn't it? Who's got who's on yes. CompuServe or whatever it is, AOL yes. chat rooms or whatever. Yeah, the absolute, like these very, very, like things that I find one of the most challenging things to understand about how this felt was to convey how, from our perspective, kind of primitive and basic the experience of using the internet, or in this case, Usenet, was. So what they did was, you know, they, they wrote exactly that, right? And I think, you know, it's wonderful that you've read this out because it really nails for us the the invention of this tone, right? The invention of this language, the fact that we still recognize it, right? Like I, I get a ton of financial, basically fraudulent financial spam constantly, and it all has this exact form. Stock's about to crash, get by this PDF now to blah, blah, blah. Like that same tone, that vibe is they, they really invented it right here. So They wanted to reach this incredibly wide audience. They were early adopters of a lot of these new technologies. They were on this system called Usenet. And the reason why the Usenet element matters is because I think it can sort of show us a little bit what a big imposition this was, why this was considered such a huge deal. Usenet was a system where you would have, essentially think of it as like a channel called a news group that would be about a specific topic. So the idea was that you would subscribe to a channel and then there would be posts about that topic and you could post too. So you'd have a channel devoted to like light aircraft and then everyone would just be talking about light aircraft. You'd have a channel, lots of channels devoted, of course, to pornography, lots of channels devoted to science fiction, lots of the kinds of things that are of interest to early adopters of these kind of new network systems. And what Cantor and Siegel, this couple did, was they hired a programmer to write a simple program to take their message and post it to every single news group on Usenet several thousand of them. So if part of the premise of Usenet was you could just follow the things that were of interest to you, well, here was a group that had just figured out that you could spam all of those news groups simultaneously. So the people who are into astronomy and the people who are into horses and the people who are into light aircraft all got the green card lottery message. But would it would it end up in people's emails or would it just end up on the kind of chat forums? That, that it would end up exist? on the chat forums. 
this is significant because I think it shows us how adaptable spam is. Because as soon as they had done this, there's this like initial moment of shock. It's actually amazing. You can go back and read the Usenet archives and see people's reactions to this first thing and see the moment where spam arrives and everybody's brains kind of break <laughs> because they are still reading this green card message and being like, I don't know why this is relevant to, you know, our butterfly collecting group. I'm trying to figure out how this is connected. You're like, no, it's not connected. You don't understand. You're about to enter the age of noise. You know, this is about to all change did, for you. Did people think it was a serious thing? Because obviously spam didn't exist. So everyone was like, goodness, this is important. Did everyone yes, take it seriously? Did. It breaks my heart because it's almost like the dodo, right? Like they've never encountered, you know, they've never encountered humans before. They're not afraid of them. They just like walk up and get like hit with sticks or something. So everyone is just kind of like, yeah, this is, huh. I mean, I suppose if we're all interested in astronomy, we're also like a lot of us might be interested in, uh, like they're, they're trying. So this creates an instant crisis. And the reason why in particular I wanted to highlight the Usenet element of it is that the people who are who don't want this to happen, who don't want spam to take over Usenet, they start trying to find ways to fight back. A lot of other people see this Usenet post and say, oh, I could do this by email. Oh, I could do this in AOL chat rooms. Oh, I could do this in... People instantly realize you can port this style to other formats and it will be just as effective. What kind of time frame between that first email in 1994, the first green card one, to the explosion in our inboxes? And how did they access emails? I can understand the chat forum thing, but how did it expand, you know, well, I suppose viruses planting malware on people's computer, which then exponentially would then send out spam. Is that what happened? That does happen, but it's a little bit later. And one of the reasons why the way it explodes is interesting is that the Usenet community, the early like proto and early internet communities, they thought that this was not a problem because they'd never really encountered it before. It's sort of the dodo thing again, right? They never really had people attacking their systems in this way. And their usual mode of defense was shaming. If someone misbehaved online, if someone was posting too much, if someone was posting too much weird stuff, took up too much bandwidth, too much space, you would just like call them out and people would like make fun of them and pile on and drive them off the network. Cantor and Siegel were lawyers and they understood their rights in the context of the United States. They understood how poorly the laws and rules of the network were defined. And they had what, you know, to use a wonderful phrase that captures this, they had chutzpah. They had shameless guts, you know? So what that means is all of these people were like, this is bad, you shouldn't be doing that. And they're like, so what? They wrote this op-ed, they got things, they called a press conference. They sent out all these releases that said like, we have gotten hundreds of thousands of dollars of new business out of this message. And this message is a legitimate use of the system. There's no ban on commercial speech. We can do whatever we want. Try to stop us. And by doing so, they told the world that you could do this. In fact, they even published a book. Are they still around? Cantor and Siegel? Yeah, are they still with us? Can we bombard them with spam emails? I mean, <laughs> do they realize the, the kind of monster that they created, I wonder? They do. And, and they did ultimately. I mean, it has to be said, what they unleashed is so out of scale to like what they did that it's hard to imagine what the consequences could, could have been. But they were ultimately like disbarred for other reasons. And like this was very shady stuff to do. They paid some prices and kind of dropped off the map eventually. But the people who followed them were even more 
brazen. They were people who identified themselves as spammers and they were public figures because again, they were sort of building on the understanding that like, well, you guys built this whole amazing infrastructure, this network of computers, and you didn't set up any rules for how it was supposed to function. So I can call myself, as, as one of the sort of main characters in my research, a fascinating guy, dubbed himself the Spam King. You know, he operated out of Las Vegas. He was like, yeah, I spam for a living. Come to me if you want to, like, spam people. He would send out like, messages in their blocks of millions and millions. There were a whole kind of spectrum that ran from People who are super respectable, who are like, I do direct marketing on the internet. I will like market your products all the way to the people who are like, you know, I am trying to convince like grandmas to send me their like yeah. insulin money out of some <laughs> scam. Like all of them came into being within like three or four years of that first message. That's what I'd do. That's where I'd go. Insulin money. It's, it's actually worth, let's, let's just pause there because it's worth pointing out how it works. You mentioned millions and millions. And of course, spamming is really, it's a game of numbers, isn't it? Even though to the untrained eye, the message may look completely ridiculous. But if you're sending out millions and millions, all you need is a vanishingly small return of people clicking on the link for you to get enough to make it worthwhile. Yes, precisely. And that is the underlying crisis that spam creates. It's going to be a long-term problem for the spammers, but it also creates an immediate problem for the users in that spam messages have an unbelievably bad return, right? Like you send out a million messages, maybe out of those, 100,000 get through the filters, 10,000 of those get even like looked at by someone briefly. And out of those, maybe 500 get a click through, right? Like that's an incredibly small, what they call in the business, conversion on this massive mailing project. But that is also a perfectly reasonable business model if you can assume that a million messages is basically free. So from the perspective of users, their lives were becoming a misery. They were being bombarded with tens, hundreds, at some points, thousands of messages a day, the vast majority of which were simply wasting their time. And I don't just say that that's obvious, that's the way spam works, but we're wasting their time also in the sense that like the spammer was not ever expecting you to click a message. The spammer was expecting one person in a million to click through a message. It's just that your attention, your wasted time didn't cost them anything. We'll be back after this short break. Hi there. I'm Don Wildman, host of the new podcast, American History Hit. Twice a week, I'll be exploring stories from America's past to help us understand the United States of today. Join me as I head back in time to witness Thomas Jefferson write the Declaration of Independence, head to the battlefields during the Civil War, visit Chief Poetin as he prepares for war with English colonists, tour Central Park before it was Central Park, and a city in Tennessee which helped build the atomic bomb. From famous battlefields to secret cities, from familiar names to lesser known events, I'll speak with leading experts from across the United States and beyond to bring American history to life. Join me every Monday and Thursday for American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment. 
you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number 1 in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. As we're talking, the one thing that we that sort of links all these things is there are people involved in it. But we've got to the point now, and this is what I don't really know much about, is this idea of spam bots. How do we go from people doing all this spamming to suddenly it just being done automatically with with spam bots and no humans involved? Yeah, I think that's a, a great example of this kind of very biological sort of arms race that develops. So the economics of spam are really brutal in exactly these ways that we've discussed, right? Like your return on any given message is going to be like 0.00001%. Your further problems are compounded by the fact that a lot of the responses that you're going to get, and you know, not just to email, but to social media posts or to other activity, are going to be, in some cases, they're going to be people deliberately trying to waste your time because they hate you. <laughs> they despise what you do. A lot of other times, it's going to be people that aren't really going to be worth the effort that you might put into trying to convert them in the business sense, right? People who are like responding to it because they're confused or they're not sure what's going on or they're operating in a second or third language and they don't really want to like buy the PDF or sign up for the porn account or whatever. So what you need to do is find a way to generate an enormous volume of messages on the order of billions of messages, whether we're talking about email or social networks, and post those messages, send those messages, and then have a mechanism to respond to people who actually bite, who actually take the bait, and then sort of bring them deeper into whatever system you've created to the goal that you want them to get to, right? So to respond to them or interact with them sufficiently that they will give you some credit card information, for example. So you want to build bots. The bots, the name applies to a lot of different kinds of tools and systems. For some areas of spam, we're talking about botnets. And botnets are the kinds of things that are running in you know, every poorly managed computing facility on planet Earth. They are online bots that are sending out basically all of the spam email that you receive it comes from these like botnet networks. 
However, there's also a huge bot problem on social media. And those are an interesting and slightly different kind of breed. Those are spam bots in that they are trying to exploit attention in one way or another, but they are much more completely interactive than the email bots are. There's there's several different kind of subcategories. I think a really good one to think about, depressingly enough, is porn bots. So... You know, you and I can learn how to do this really easily. It's a very straightforward process, but we could spin up a couple thousand Twitter accounts. All of those Twitter accounts are being run by simple pieces of software. They all will automatically grab a headshot from uh, various databases of basically like women in porn, sex workers. They will bring up a headshot from that. They will generate a name and then they will start producing a series of posts based on a library of language that we have scraped from like comments to pornographic videos and from descriptions of pornographic videos. They will generate these like lines of text about how they are, you know, whatever, we don't need to go into it. You can imagine what this kind of thing would be. And the astonishing thing, which you can watch unfold in real time, is that they will start to snag, to put it simply, lonely, horny, older men online who are not, <laughs> who can't tell that they're not interacting with the real person. And then as those men like DM or at message the bot, the bot will have a further lexicon of language it can use to write automatic replies to respond. And what all of those replies will drive towards is I will send you photos if you give me an Amazon gift card or words to that effect. This is a really depressing activity that I do not recommend. But if you can find a man who falls for porn bots, and then you go into his replies on Twitter, you will find many, many more porn bots who are attracted by his online activity. And then if you go into their replies, you will find guys, people that you could meet, right? Like people <laughs> with businesses and families and lives who are like interacting with a machine and then literally sending it pictures of their credit cards front and back. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> I have no porn bots on my Twitter account, of course. As, a, as an older, lonely, uh, what am I, mm -hmm. older, lonely <laughs> man, horny. Yes. <laughs> man, it is really, really dark, isn't it? The whole thing just seems really... And, uh, you know, it's, it's funny, actually, because, uh, you know, Elon Musk, now he's taken over Twitter. I'm like, kind of wondering, because I've thought about this, because I remember a few years ago, I had this brilliant idea, which was, we all get too much email. We all, everyone emails far too much, and our inboxes are far too cluttered, and it drives everyone crazy. Now, if we... Have had to charge for every email we sent, like the price of a stamp, nobody would email anymore. Or you'd be very, very selective because it would cost, you know, 50p or whatever it would cost to send an email. A, you cut back on emails and B, you, cut, you won't get any more spam because suddenly that business model doesn't work. Is that what Elon Musk's doing with his $8 to join Twitter? Basically, if you have to pay $8 to join Twitter, then that gets rid of all the bots, presumably. What you're describing was one of the first and most persistent ideas about how to solve spam. Going back to the 1990s, people said, like, let's develop some form of metered online communication. And it's really not a bad idea at all, especially because, right, you could set that metering unbelievably low from our perspective, right? You could, you could set it to be, you know, some tiny, tiny percentage of the smallest unit of currency. We would never even notice that it was being charged to us. Even if money was very tight, you know, it would still it would still not matter. It would matter if you sent out 10 million messages a day. So 
that premise was actually a really, like, I think a really thoughtful and, and smart way to think about how to stop spam. And in fact, just as an aside, people trying to figure out how to create that created some of the underlying infrastructure of what would become cryptocurrency eventually. People <laughs> oh, like Adam Back were, yeah, oh. they were trying to come up with ways to make each message cost some very small amount of computational work and so on. So the people who were fighting that. The reason why that idea never took off was by and large, I, it pains me to say this, but by and large, direct marketing associations in the United States, right? Like the people who make a lot of money out of sending like mailers to a postal address of like, you know, coupons and ads that everyone immediately recycles. The people who saw this as a potential new, like, we don't want to build in some part of the infrastructure that's going to make it so we can't send out 10 million messages if we want to, you know, we want to like kind of keep that, that space open. So that idea has persisted through time. And one of the variations of it, which is what Elon Musk is doing right now, is trying to create a sort of threshold system. You can see it in a number of different places have tried this. There's a, a smaller social network online called Metafilter that has had this in place for decades now, a $5 entry fee before you can start posting. And that does a very good job of keeping all of the kind of automated systems away. Part of the problem that Musk is going to run into, which I think is a really deep and again, depressing but amazing thing about spam is that Social media spam is actually secretly what a lot of people want. And I say that because whenever Twitter in the past has done these huge sweeps to try to get rid of the bot accounts and the spam accounts, all of the big influencers, their follow accounts plummet and their engagement plummets because a lot of the people who are following them were bots. And then there's a gigantic outcry of like, what did you just do? <laughs> like a big part of how I make money is that I have a million and a half followers. <laughs> I'm down to half of that. I don't have any bots. And I, I, I willingly show my credit card details to all my real <laughs> human followers on, 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 my, on my Twitter mm -hmm. account. That's interesting. Actually, the other thing I wanted to ask you as well, as, as sort of part of this arms race. So, okay, th that idea of monetizing it as a way of solving the problem hasn't really caught on for the reasons that you you've described. What about sort of capture? You know, those, uh, those ideas where, you know, if you want to log on to something, they show you a kind of wiggly word, or you've got to point mm. to the amount of fire hydrants in the grid of pictures <laughs> to prove that you're a human. Is, does that, where did that come from? Did, did someone invent that as a, as, a, as a way of combating spam? Yes. Yeah. Capture was designed originally as a, a system for figuring out what are the sorts of problems that are just difficult enough for computers to solve and very easy for humans to solve so that we can make a barrier, right? So even if it is possible for a computer to guess, let's say one time in 20, that that like distorted text, that sort of weird misshapen word is a particular word, well, then you have raised the cost of spamming 20 fold, right? Like now the computer has to guess all that time, blah, 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 blah. So the CAPTCHA was a pretty brilliant approach to anti-spam, right? We can make CAPTCHAs before you can sign up for another email account, so spammers can't create 10,000 email accounts every hour. The, the sad part of what happens with the CAPTCHA is that a new economy develops, a handoff 
economy in which you like we could again find these services this afternoon sign up for them with a credit card like get ourselves all set up in which we will have uh, a simple piece of software that whenever it hits a captcha will automatically send that captcha over to a human operator who is sitting in a country where they we can pay them very very little money for their work and they will just sit there and boom captcha they solve it boom captcha they solve it over and over and over oh again 10 God. hours a day just taking the handoffs from the machine so we have sidestepped that problem with for lack of a better way of putting it artificial artificial intelligence what's where where where's all this heading finn like okay because it all still feels pretty wild west but you know as ai is going to do extraordinary things to the human brain, I think, in the next decades, two decades. What's it all going to look like? Oh, that's, that's a good question. Where, where, where does it go? And what does this say about us as humans? Yeah, no, I, I think the near term of what we are what we are seeing now, especially with the development of tools like the recent chat GPT, which I'm sure everyone has, has seen in the news, right? The system that in response to a relatively simple prompt will produce, you know, full paragraphs of like very well written and lucid and human-like explanation about something that is creating this huge panic about students using it to write papers in college and so exactly. on. Exactly. And and deep fake technology as well. Like, you know. Yeah, deep fakes, deep fakes, which are becoming simple, they're becoming less deep all the time, right? Because they're becoming simpler and easier <laughs> and faster for everyone to execute and everyone to do. So I think the the near future is going to I'm hesitating because I don't want to depress the entire audience more than we already depress have. Depress us. They don't mind. Our listeners, they're they're an educated bunch. I think the near future is going to be a permanent, ongoing epistemological crisis, right? Crikey. An epistemological crisis in the sense of epistemology as in like a theory of knowledge. How do you know what's true? How do you know when a human is talking? How do you know when something is, is real? That is going to be a permanent, ongoing problem, right? How do you know that the picture you're looking at is real? You don't. How do you know that the thing that you're reading online was produced by, not just by a human, but was produced by someone you know? versus an AI system which has learned from their public posting activity to write and sound exactly like them. You don't. How do you know that an article on Wikipedia, an article online, was real or was like automatically generated by something for some end, whether that is sales or political manipulation or psychological manipulation or Political whatever. manipulation, yeah. How do we know that the Russian bots interfered with the 2016 American election, et cetera, et cetera? <laughs> okay, epistemological crisis what do we do Finn? help us how can we how can we deal with this craziness it's it's interesting to think about what the responses to that would look like and i i have to say as simple as this answer might be i think we can see a lot of real world versions of it already forming i think we will see a kind of strategic retreat into smaller more tight knit more human communities of kinds that are actually really familiar from the yeah. early internet, right? We're going yeah. to, I don't want to be one of those guys, you know, that sort of online thing of like return with like the V instead of the U, you know, mm -hmm. like go back to the ancient ways or whatever. I am kind of a return guy for the internet. I'm like, let's go back to like pre-1994 when one of the reasons why things worked as well as they did and created the sort of like early utopian experience was that they were many small communities of like tight knit people who mostly 
knew each other, even if they never knew each other's real names or met each other in real life. So now look at us, look at our current situation. When I look at young people that I work with, they spend a lot of time on Discord, right? And Discord is a platform where you can create these smaller servers. And on those servers, you can actually have a bunch of people that you get to know and recognize. Now, the reason why this matters is that when some new weirdo shows up who is like, hey, everyone, you know, and like starts to address you in ways you're like, this seems robotic or this seems strange or even this just seems like it has an agenda. There's something off about this. The group can like work together to identify and stop it. So it needs that that human touch. The automated tools have been in an arms race, as we've talked about, for almost 30 years. And they are now at a place where they're so sophisticated that the humans are getting absolutely left in the dust. So you need to create spaces where the humans are really the core of what's going on. There's no algorithms that are guiding what gets posted or seen first. Like all of that stuff can be left to the bots and the poor damaged people who are trapped talking to them. We're going to like retreat into smaller communities. I like this. I think that's a good place to pause. I've been saying this for a long time. You know, the algorithms will be the death of us. Honestly, the algorithms mm-hmm. taking over. I am going to go back to dial up i'm gonna i'm gonna dust off my i still have a CompuServe web address email address mm-hmm. somewhere and an aol chat room profile somewhere <laughs> so maybe i'm gonna re- regress back to that i think finn listen you're brilliant i love talking to you and i hope you come on again and talk about something else because um it's an absolute pleasure to have you on again and, and absolutely fascinating and a privilege no less to have you on talking to us about such interesting things thank you very much indeed Thank you so much for having me. This has been a delight. Thank you very much for listening. If you've got an idea for something you'd like us to cover, perhaps a story or an invention or a thing you want us to get to the bottom of, we've got a brand new shiny email address that you can contact us on. It is patented at historyhits.com. That's it. Or you can continue to send me messages on Twitter, etc. Or stop me in the street. Uh, thank you very, very much for listening. It's an absolute pleasure doing these podcasts. And it's lovely to know that they are appreciated. I will see you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway. Like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch. Download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play, and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes, or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Falk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code Patented at the checkout, you get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.